Hello and welcome to the iFreak Show. I'm Sean Claybo, your guest host for today. And today we have with me Alex Butch. Oh, hi, Alex. Hello, hello. Hello. And our guest today is Gopal Sharma. Hey, Gopal. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing? Good, good. Good. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So it sounds like uh, we got an interesting topic today. So we're talking about backend stuff. Uh, why don't you take it from here, Alex? Um, so yeah, Gopal, we're, um, you gave a talk uh, at uh, um, TriSwift in 2018, right? About Swift on the server, are we there yet? Uh, you, you had some interesting sort of an overview there of you know, Swift is a hot technology, right? But everyone keeps asking like, but, but is it ready? Is it ready? So could you, first of all, actually, before we dive into that though, could you give us um, kind of brief overview of your background, your experience, and then we can talk about what you covered in, the, in that uh, TriSwift talk. Yeah, sure thing, Alex. So uh, I started my career at, uh, at a company called Qualcomm, which uh, makes hardware for predominantly, I guess, Android phones now. Um, and I was working on, on porting Android to various Qualcomm chipsets, and I absolutely hated it. So uh, soon after I started that, I uh, actually moved to Apple, um, and I was working in the iCloud uh, team for several years on iCloud.com, the, the, the web version of iCloud, if you will. Um, and then after a few years of doing that, I moved back home to Bangalore and uh, started working at this company called Surya. And from, from the last, uh, you know, three, four years, we've been working on uh, several projects. We're sort of like a, uh, uh, an agency that brings a, a product mindset to, uh, to building stuff for other people. And that's involved predominantly mobile apps as well as the backends that come with it, uh, particularly in an enterprise context in addition to the typical stuff that startups do and that sort of thing. So that's where my experience with uh, building stuff for the server side has, has uh, come by over the last several years at Apple as well as uh, after that, doing stuff for other, doing stuff for other people. Uh, makes sense. So yeah, and then then you spoke as I mentioned uh, last year, uh, Tri Swift, and you had had sort of several things you went over um, regarding server side Swift. I, I guess kind of overall, what do we even expect from a server side, uh, well, language and frameworks, right? to be ready for prime time production. So could you maybe reiterate a little bit um, briefly what those, those were, those things we would expect, first of all, and where the Swift is today, right? Yeah, yeah. So 
uh, with, with anything on the server side, uh, you have to necessarily sort of exercise a bit of caution when you go to production, particularly in, in an enterprise setting, or even if you're building something for consumers, you really need to make sure that this is not necessarily an area where you want to be a guinea pig or be on the cutting edge, because if things go down, you're not affecting one, one or two users, you're going to affect possibly everybody, uh, everybody using your service and, and outages can really sort of kill you. So with that in mind, you know, a lot of people like to talk about uh, things like, you know, what is, what is the high level API look like um, and that sort of stuff. But uh, my approach there was also to look at some of the stuff that is considered standard in, in, in traditional server-side development languages and frameworks. And then as well uh, to look at sort of the performance angle of, of what Swift brings to the table. Uh, because if you keep in mind, you know, when you compare to things like a Python, Ruby, JavaScript uh, sort of uh, context, uh, A Swift is a statically typed language, which means typically uh, once your optimizations are done, you can get some pretty good performance out of that. Uh, second, uh, what is incredibly valuable uh, is, is predictability, right? Uh, so when you're, when you're working with a garbage collected environment, like on the JVM or in .NET, or for that matter, Python, Ruby, et cetera, when you're operating at even reasonable scale, being able to predict how your service is going to perform is really, really useful. I can't tell you the number of times where what has happened is uh, some service is either having a garbage problem or a garbage collection problem, and you don't know which one of the two is actually the case. And debugging that can be incredibly hard and, and you know, it's, it's a frustrating experience. Uh, whereas with a language like Swift, that's really not as much of an issue thanks to, to, to Arc and as well, uh, if you really want to, you, you can get one level lower and even not use that for extremely performance sensitive uh, parts of your code. Uh, so that was sort of the approach I took saying, you know, are the basic building blocks that we expect uh, in there and uh, what are the sort of performance angles? And finally, of course, one of the, 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 the agendas I had is what is really unique to Swift's uh, contribution to the server-side ecosystem. Because uh, when you think about it, it's going up against ecosystems that have been around very, very long, right? So if you compare against Java or .NET or Python, these are systems that have been in production and have been battle-tested for 10, 20 years. Uh, so trying to go up head-to-head -head against that is always going to be an uphill battle. So unless you have something that you bring to the table that's different, it's going to be hard to convince people to think that this is the way you want to go. Mm -hmm. So those are sort of the ideas that I wanted to put forth and say, okay, where do we really stand as of now? Of course, it's been a year since then, so a lot of things have changed and for the better. So I can kind of throw in a little bit there. So you're talking about back end with the garbage collection because I'm primarily a .NET developer. So why would you know somebody that's done .NET for years and years and years, why would they be interested in switching over to Swift? It's an excellent question, and uh, the answer is, it really depends. You might not be interested in switching over to some site Swift, and really sort of uh, the, the reason that I've seen why people want to do this is, A, you're working with a team that's already familiar with, the, with Swift and the Swift tooling and, and, and the ecosystem around that. So if you've already got a team of iOS developers, um, it may be, and you don't have an established team of server-side engineers who have experience somewhere else. Uh, that's the, it's typically the use case I've seen for why people want to uh, use Swift on the server. Now, personally, I'm not sure that's a, a great reason because uh, if you think about, you know, all that you need to develop a server-side uh, service, um, 
the programming language is really a relatively small part of that, right? So for example, you really need to understand how networking works underneath the hood, how concurrency works underneath the hood, um, how you're gonna do monitoring, how you're going to do debugging uh, because it's a distributed system and that sort of stuff. And, and that is a lot harder to learn than, than, than just a programming language, right? Um, right. So it's, things it's, like it's things really- also Things like uh, authorization, authentication, precisely. all that kind of stuff, yeah. Precisely, precisely, right? So I think, I think sort of uh, the idea is, is, is Swift has to sort of bring something to the table that's gonna give you an edge on something or the other. And I think honestly, the reason that, that, uh, uh, that you use Swift is because of Neo. Uh, so Neo is this really low-level uh, networking framework. It's a it's a non-blocking asynchronous I/O framework uh, that has it's if you've heard of the Netty project from the JVM ecosystem, it's an equivalent uh, of that, but written in Swift. It's a clean room implementation in Swift by some of the same people who've written Netty. Um, and for reference, Netty is is powering pretty much most of Twitter, a lot of uh, iCloud, and so on. So it's used at incredible scale. Uh, by a lot of different people. And gRPC is using Netty under the hood as well. So, so the reason is Neo brings something to the table that really, as far as I've seen, not too many other ecosystems have uh, in terms of uh, the, the story around that. And Neo would be a, an engine or a framework right under the hood of, um, I, I think most of the server side, side Swift frameworks today, right? that actually handles, does it handle only HTTP or other types of connections? Uh, Neo is actually one level below HTTP. So it's sort of an abstraction over, over IO in general. So for example, if you want to talk to us something like a memcached, right? That's not really an HTTP protocol, uh, but you would be able to build that with Neo. So Neo is something that you expect that the authors of the traditional web frameworks that we would use. So for example, uh, you know, you talked about .NET. If you're someone using ASP.NET, MVC, or whatever, you would never see something like Neo. Um, it's the people who wrote ASP.NET, MVC that would use Neo instead, right? Um, but it's such a strong uh, component there because getting that right is incredibly hard and getting it to work fast is incredibly hard. So having that common base that all the server-side Swift frameworks depend on means that you're sort of, instead of each one trying to re-implement that stuff on their own, you have a really strong base on which you can provide different developer ergonomics uh, without having to reinvent that wheel over and over again. And so the modern framework's essentially built on top of it, right? The, the Vapor, I think you mentioned Vapor and Katura, right, in your talk? Correct, yes, yes, yes. So both of those have moved over to Neo since pretty much Neo came out. Um, I think Vapor's move was a bit easier because they were headed in that direction already before the Neo project was announced. Um, I think Kitura is, is still a little bit uh, of a, their the, the design is a little bit different. Um, so one of the key things that Neo has is the sort of promise-based API. And, and, that's what, and that's why it's able to do what it's able to do in so well is because it's fully natively into the async non-blocking IO paradigm. So they have a promise-based API and Vapor was already moving in that direction. So it's just a matter of sort of plugging the Neo APIs on top, uh, underneath Vapors. But Kitura takes a slightly different approach of saying they want to give you a typical, um, if you will, like a serverless type of approach where it's still one thread for request uh, sort of interface. So I get a function that I get that gets called when my request is in, and I sort of execute sequentially. That happens that Neo can also be used underneath the hood, and and sort of uh, Kitura plugs that interface for you. 
uh, whereas Vapor's approach is sort of simply to expose the Neo paradigm upwards. I see, interesting. So in that regard, would you say um, both of those, well, rather Vapor maybe more, uh, more akin to and similar to like Node type of paradigm, if you will, of handling requests rather than Ruby on Rails, let's say, right? Where everything's exactly. function call effect or method call rather. Precisely, yes. That, that, that's exactly the way I put it, yeah. So, so Vapor's approach is, is uh, as a developer, you're looking at something more like a Node, uh, whereas with Kitura, it's more like a Ruby on Rails sort of thing. Could, could, you, could you sort of maybe clarify from the developer's perspective, right? Uh, what does it mean to me if, if, for example, I'm building, I have my iOS app, I'm just building a, an API backend for it, right? Do I want this node-ish approach of this events flowing in fast, or do I want to actually know like one HTTP post request, let's say, is just kind of one server-side function call, if you will? Yeah, yeah. So again, this really depends on, on, on the scale that you want to work with, right? So if, if you're sort of simply building an MVP and you just want to get something out there quickly and, and you're not super concerned about how will this scale in the future, uh, then sort of the, the Ruby on Rails model, if you will, is just easier to work with because you don't have to really think about uh, concurrency at all. You would write the way you normally would anything else, saying, you know, step one, step two, step three. It's the typical imperative style of programming. Um, and, and things like debugging and all of that are fairly easy because you get meaningful stack traces and that kind of thing. Um, and, and in general, because that ecosystem has been around longer, the tools around it are better as well, right? Um, so if, if that's not a concern for you, then that's probably the easiest way to go. Now, where things like async IO really start to make a difference is when you want to get a lot of throughput out of the same hardware, right? So if you're expecting to actually deal with scale, uh, the problem becomes that with something like a Ruby on Rails, um, your one thread per connection uh, design, if you will, uh, only goes so far. Right. Whereas with something like a Neo or, or, or Node, you can get an order of magnitude more throughput through that system. Now, of course, that means that you have to put in a bit more work to make all of this work. Um, and some things are easier than others and that sort of stuff. So, so to, to give an iOS developer's version, right, it's sort of like saying uh, in, the, in the good slash bad old days of NSURL connection, which was a synchronous blocking API, would you rather use that or would you rather use something uh, like a URL session with either the callbacks or with uh, a, a wrapper around it through Rx or something like that. You know, there's, there's good reasons to use both. Um, the, the main one for NSURL connection being it's easy, right? You didn't really have to explain to someone how that worked. You just said, make a request. You would wait until you got a response and you were done. That, that makes a lot of sense, actually, and good analogy there. Uh, actually, but then still from the perspective, I guess what I want to sort of take it back a little to to a perspective of just, again, atypical, let's say, iOS dev who needs a backend, right? Because well, like, we need to build one for iOS app. At, would you say, like, at, at what stage would you say, or how, how, how ready is, because th there would be multiple kind of life stages of your project, right? And in the very beginning, as you mentioned, it's going to be an MVP, you just need to get things out of the door. So maybe pick the simpler model of issuing requests and handling them on the, on the back end. And in this case, uh, Katura is 
sort of simpler, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, so if, 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 if you're not super concerned about uh, how you're going to get this to work in the long term, right? Um, and, and let's say that you're familiar with the Swift ecosystem. Um, and, and as a consequence, you want to write your backend in Swift as well. Uh, I'd venture that possibly Kitora is an easier start. Uh, but honestly, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I don't think it's a substantial difference in that uh, I've, I've had a few people, uh, uh, junior engineers on my team try this out and it hasn't been that hard for them to pick up Vapor. Now, of course, there's a difference between sort of using the high level APIs of Vapor and getting what you need done and then trying to debug your performance issues and that sort of stuff. And those are two different things. So, so but, yeah, I, I was gonna then get to that, right? Uh, sort of maybe that part is, let's, I assume uh, Katura is uh, better in the beginning specifically, right? When you're small and just MVPing. But then what about the rest of the tooling around it that you need as you build your server-side application? Because uh, I know, like, I have limited knowledge uh, of, of what Katura and Vapor do, maybe cursory overview. But as far as I understood, Vapor has way more built in into the package kind of like Rails in that regard, right? So then you get all of your migrations, you get your Postgres, um, whatever, connection thing, stuff like that, right? And where Couture is more of a Lego block, a collection of Lego blocks, you need to put it together, right? And as you get going, let's say you're small, right? Do Which one would you want to go for, right? Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right. Yeah. So, so uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, the, the design of Vapor and Kitora in terms of are they a bunch of building blocks that fit together? Or is it more of a Ruby on Rails approach of uh, everything is included and it's a batteries included approach? Um, and both of them, I think, are designed with uh, the idea of there's, there's a bunch of small pieces that will work together. Interesting. Okay. So for sort of, is there a preference in your opinion for the scale of the project uh, when, when, when you would want to go you know, if you're a solo dev, do you want to go with Katura more? Or, or if you're a team of hungry people, Vapor is better. I think it's, it comes down to sort of what your personal taste or preferences are. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I, I like Vapor's uh, APIs or, or design philosophy a bit better. So I would probably go to Vapor, but I, it's not to say that, you know, uh, Katura's is bad or anything like that. They've done a tremendous job of putting a whole bunch of stuff together really, really well. I think it's more you sort of try a bit of both and see what talks to you um, and move forward. But I don't think you can really go wrong with either of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what about the, all the sort of common tasks? And you, you covered a lot of them in your talk, uh, sort of database handling, connection with a database, migration, uh, debugging. How both of those are kind of accommodating it today? What's the story there? So that story, unfortunately, is, is not phenomenal. Uh, so so one, of the, one of the advantages of working with, a, with ecosystems like a Ruby or, or a .NET or a Java is this concept of being able to catch exception, if you will, at the root of your handlers. 
Um, and what happens there is typically if you're running, uh, running a web service, one process is handling hundreds, thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands of requests at one time. So let's say you've written your code and somewhere in there, you're trying to get something out of an array and you're going to run, and run into an index out of bounds problem, right? Uh, in all of these other ecosystems, what happens is, okay, that request is toast. You end up responding with a 500 or something like that and you're good to go, right? And you can do this fairly safely because you have a root exception handler somewhere in there and typically the framework even gives you one, right? The problem in Swift is if you end up trying to pull something out of an array that doesn't exist, that's going to trap. You're going to get a fatal error and your entire process goes down. That's, is that because of the Swift nature of Swift? Because Correct. even if you uh, capture the whole application instance that you, in the main function that you initialize, and then you say, okay, this is in a try block, but then on a, itself it doesn't throw really right so nothing's captured or, or how, how, i guess how, how my question how does it work i'm trying to wrap my head around it right so so uh if if you do end up using try and catch in in swift it's actually not a problem because you can trap on those and and, and you can catch those and recover from them but the problem is if you do an index out of bounds sort of thing in an array that's not throwing an exception that's effectively calling fatal right. error right and fatal error, you can't really recover from. That's the death of your process. I mean, maybe you can do a little bit of uh, housekeeping to dump the state of your stack or something like that to a file before you die, but that's about it. It's not the kind of thing where in, say, in a Ruby, you would simply catch exception and say, okay, that request is done, but everything else is still fine, right? So if I had 100 other requests in flight in the same process, they don't have to pay the price for this mistake. So in Swift, uh, what ends up happening is you have to write your code in a way where nothing that you do and nothing that the frameworks you use do can ever result in a fatal error, right? Whereas if you're writing an iOS application, if your invariant as a developer, let's say, is that a particular array must have five elements. And for whatever reason, either because you made a mistake or because your server returned you bad data, uh, you end up just saying, okay, get element at index five, and then you put an exclamation point at the end. Um, okay, maybe you'll have a bunch of angry users for whom your app is crashing under certain circumstances, but you're not going to cause a service outage, right? But if you do that in Swift, you're probably going to cause a service outage because you're going to kill hundreds of thousands of requests in one go. Mm. So yeah, the danger is there is the scale of your instance that your actual of your application that you're working with. That's something that we as iOS developers never have to think about. Even right. though you might be building an app that's super popular and millions of people use it, it's still one insta instance of an app per user hands, really. Yes, yes, exactly. And with the server you have yeah, one, one instance, but multiple applications might be not even iOS apps, right? Any apps just constantly bombarding it with requests. Okay, I, I see that now. That's a problem. Yes. Right, right. Um, so so it's, it's, not a, it's not a sort of a deal killer or anything like that. It just means you have to think about things differently and you have to be very careful how you, how you uh, write your code. So if, if you're, again, an iOS developer, while fatal errors and exclamation points are probably still a bad idea. Um, we use them all over the place. I mean, if you use Interface Builder at all, your, your code is littered with them everywhere, right? But, but on the server side, that's the kind of thing that you say, okay, that code doesn't make it in period, right? So that's one part of it. Um, and when I spoke about this last year, one of the other problems was, let's say you do have a crashing bug of this nature, 
right? Figuring out what went wrong was actually really, really hard because you couldn't even get a stack trace uh, predictably. You would end up having to check the core dump and run some script that was sitting somewhere in the Swift repository and, and get what you needed. Uh, fortunately, I think the folks at IBM have fixed that now and there is a nice little way to get a proper stack trace when things go down. Um, but it's still the kind of thing that, for example, uh, if you use a logging or a monitoring service like the Elk stack or Splunk or whatever, um, and you're working in the Java ecosystem or the Ruby ecosystem, you typically have things in there already which say, hey, if you end up with a 500, that's easily recorded in your monitoring system. You get a nice little stack trace. You can plug them into your dashboards and that sort of thing and monitor them fairly easily. But this sort of thing happening in the Swift ecosystem, and this has nothing to do with Vapor or, or Futura, it's just how the, it's the language itself that's the problem. You have to be really, really careful in terms of how you do it. And you probably have to rely on extensive logging, I would assume, right? To at least some yes. breadcrumb it back. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. So that yes. hasn't changed since, um, and that's, that's that also uh, not really, um, and 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 that also poses other problems because when you talk about logging, uh, typically what you want to do is set up your logging to work asynchronously. So if I write a log statement, I don't want to actually be flushing my file in that moment because uh, you're going to have performance issues if you do that. So if you have asynchronous logging set up, and you have the scenario that something goes wrong you might end up in a situation where your logs don't get flushed because the process is dead. Oh, that, I see. <laughs> wow, that, that's, uh, that seems like a, a hard problem. I, I see that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Hmm. Okay, that, that makes sense. How about the database handling? Like I remember when I worked with Ruby on Rails, it was really nice to uh, do migrations. Uh, pretty easy. The framework handles it. Everything's sort of there and abstracts SQL from you as much as possible. Uh, what's the story there not these days with Vapor and the Katura? Right, um, so this is one of those things where I have this uh, deep-rooted, uh, I don't know, hate, if you will, for ORMs, right? Um, and, and it's come because over the years, uh, I've used a lot of them and in one way or the other, I've been um, they're, they're really nice to start with uh, because, you, like you said, you don't have to learn about SQL and that sort of thing. But eventually, you're going to run into, run into a performance issue, and then you're going to run into a brick wall. The, the difference oh. between knowing how to use an ORM. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I use an ORM um, quite frequently. And I think if you know it, the ins and outs of it, you really know the depths, um, how it works inside and out, and you're able to trace through some of the things. I don't think you're going to hit that brick wall for quite some time, but but I, I get some then some of the new developers if they're they're just using it plain Jane, don't understand the in, ins and outs of it, it it could be trouble. Actually, yeah, guys, let let's reiterate what what an ORM is. Like on iOS, we don't really throw throw around that term, right? Yes, yes, that's a, that's a really good question. An ORM is an object relational mapper. Um, now, when I first looked it up, I was I don't know what the hell. That means. Uh, so, what it is is it's sort of an effort to try and model a database as a series of objects and relationships. So, for example, the usual, uh, the canonical example I've seen is of books and authors, right? Uh, if you're working with a relation, a relational database uh, like a Postgres or whatever, you would model that as uh, using foreign keys, right? So, either a, a one to one to many or a many to many relationship. What an ORM tries to do is make it so that you can say books.authors, right, 
and, and the ORM would be responsible for figuring out where the author's uh, other information is and bring that to you seamlessly, right? So you wouldn't have to worry about how is this actually stored in a database? You just look at it as a series of objects that are linked. Right. So, so in an ORM, then each row, each entry in your tables where you store data, right? And then let's say it's a Postgres table or MySQL or one of those relational, as you said, then objects in your memory represent those data in those rows or rather represent those rows, I guess. And then, but then the additional addition that you're talking about is when you call certain methods that, that are not directly accessing fields in that table for that specific, with data for that specific role, then a, uh, you need to fetch data, right? Or the system needs to fetch some more from another table to give it to you. And that's where the, in typical ORM, an implicit action of that fetching will happen even though you innocently just called some method of authors or books. Exactly, exactly. So, so it's, it's, it's things like, for example, in, in the books and authors case, if you say books or authors, now that looks innocuous, right? But if your authors for that particular book has a million entries in there, right? That will kill your app, right? Um, and you, you, you aren't really sort of aware of the implications of doing that join underneath the hood. And, and sort of what happens as a consequence of that. So it's, it's one of these things where it's, it's, a, it's a nice abstraction in some cases, but if you go back to the classic uh, Joel Spolsky article on leaky abstractions, ORMs are leaky abstractions. Uh, before too long, you're gonna have to get into the depths of how a particular ORM works. So it's sort of like if you're familiar with Active Record on, on Ruby, and then you decide to use something else in another ecosystem, that's not really always a one-to-one mapping, right? Like the, the way Active Record works underneath the hood is substantially different uh, from say Hibernation in the JVM ecosystem or anything like that. So it's one of those things where, you know, uh, you, there's a difference between looking easy on the surface and then you actually knowing how it works underneath the hood. Um, and learning how it works underneath the hood, I would venture is actually harder than just learning SQL. Because ultimately, you know that you're going to be using a relational database. You know that database's primary interface is going to be SQL. And my feeling is uh, skip the abstraction. Just, just go to that. Uh, and for most use cases, it's actually not as hard as you think. I hear what you're saying there. Um, and you know, I, I know SQL, and I know in my world, in .NET, we use Entity Framework. So I get that. But what I find out that for myself is that using an ORM, I'm a lot more productive rather than having to work out all the joins and the subqueries and so on and so forth for a really complex query. The ORM will do a lot of that for me. And I use some tools that'll, that'll take my query that I'm using as an ORM and spit out what the SQL is mm -hmm. so that I can then look at it and say, okay, was that good SQL that it developed or not? And when I, teach new developers about ORMs, the first thing that I warn them about is when you ask for an object, it's gonna ask for every column on that object in the database. So if you're looking at a person table and there's 100 fields for a person, it's gonna return all 100 fields. So you wanna really get into using projections on your ORMs so that it's only gonna return the fields that you want. So that's when the, the first and utmost in performance enhancements that you can do when you're using an ORM is 
project everything out to only those fields you want to get back. Otherwise, it's tuning a select a select star on the entire row, and that's really going to hear database. Precisely, that's exactly right. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's definitely a worthwhile abstraction to use. Um, like I said, it's just for me. For me, my personal preference is always to say. Uh, it's an abstraction to me that I'm usually willing to forego and just get to one level, one level lower. Now, to me, the, the big value add of an RM is, is this idea of being database engine agnostic, right? Because you talked about entity framework in .NET. If you write your APIs against that, um, theoretically, uh, in practice, it's not ever that simple. Theoretically, you can swap out your database engine from, say, Postgres to MySQL or whatever, and it's the responsibility of the ORM to handle most, if not all of that for you. Now, to me, that's really appealing. And second, uh, the other part is, um, for better or worse, SQL ends up being stringly typed. Um, and, and an ORM can give you some of the, the compiler level checks uh, for that, particularly in, in Swift, right? Uh, the type system is extremely expressive and you can write some really good uh, uh, static type checking around that. Um, and that's what I think, uh, uh, you know, what Vapor does is really, really clever where you can sort of write something that looks like SQL, but is in Swift, right? So you would write things like select as a function and move from there. And then Vapor would take on the responsibility of generating the SQL for you. So, and theoretically you could change the engine behind that. Of course, there is an ORM as well in both Vapor and Futura. Um, and I, I've never used it because uh, like I said, I'm one of the people who simply says, uh, I'd rather not use the abstraction of an ORM. Uh, but I, I know people who use it and they do say it's pretty nice. Of course, uh, in terms of how it performs relative to established ones, I don't know. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. And I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. And that really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. And it's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. Yeah, so actually, yeah, that, that's very interesting. I, uh, from what I knew about Vapor, I, although granted I looked at it at version two, I believe, maybe three-ish, I thought they only offered active record-like thing, I guess ORM technically, uh, but you're saying there is another um, abstraction. They do have something that looks a lot like that, but it's built on something else which, which generates the SQL, and you can simply go uh -huh. use that instead. I see. Can you, do, can you do raw SQL instead? Absolutely, yes. yes. Okay, so, so I guess it's all three available then. That, that's good. Same for Katura? Uh, or Absolutely, do... yes. Okay. So that's flexible enough, actually. I believe in 
uh, Rails, when I was using Rails, uh, executing SQL wasn't, mm, well, I guess it's also relatively easy, but it was just odd to do. Yeah, it's, 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 it's similar to sort of, uh, if you're an iOS developer and you're using something like a code data, Theoretically, yes, you could open up that, the, the core data SQLite file if you back core data with SQLite and use it that way. But while a lot of people like to think of core data as an SQLite wrapper, it's, it's really not intended to be used that way, um, which, which sort of leads to a lot of friction, if you will. And, and it's one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of core data either. Yeah, and then core data has a different sort of model. It's not really trying to be an object per row. It, it's Correct. some intermediary in memory type of thing with specific context for uh, it's crazier in my opinion, yes. <laughs> o- overly complex uh, for what it should be really. Um, okay. So that's, that's actually, okay. So that then in terms of database working with database, this one side sounds to me like pretty well taken care of at least accessing the database and reading from it, you, you have your various options depending on your preference in both of those frameworks. How about migrations? Let's say, and, and for sort of people who, I was specifically people who don't work with data, databases much, migration would be a, um, you know, you have your tables where the data is already stored, but then you need to alter them somehow, either by adding new rows and new columns and uh, new tables even, or by altering existing ones, removing them or changing their type. For that, typically you would need a sort of a migration tool that would be a function or an object that takes care of that change, right? Because that's a destructive change typically. So what, ha- what do we have with Vapor and Katura for that? Um, so if you use the uh, ORM-like interface for both, there are tools that are built in to do that. Um, this is again an area where it's, it's something that I haven't played with particularly a lot because typically what we build, you end up sort of building in a uh, microservices sort of architecture where maybe not every component is in Swift. So we usually handle migrations of the database outside of the application framework, right? Uh, so we end up doing it through a tool like Flyway where we simply say that the database migration is handled by a different set of people in a different set, in, in, using different set of tools in a different way. Um, because it may be more than one application that's accessing that same database, right? Um, and another factor there is uh, if you're using an application to do the migrations for you, um, there's, there's, there's multiple approaches that you can follow there as well. One is sort of the approach of saying uh, at build time, you look at the changes to your model and you run something that sort of says, look at the change to the model and then generate the set of uh, the SQL that needs to be, uh, to be run in order for me to bring my database up, right? The other type is when your application goes online, the application checks against the server, the database server, and makes the changes it needs on the fly. Now, people, I've not, I haven't really seen people use the latter much, except in a development environment, because it's incredibly dangerous. Um, but it is possible to do that. Um, but having said that, it's, it's honestly something that I haven't used a lot, uh, because we typically tend to leave our database migrations to a special purpose schema tool. Hmm. I see. Okay. That, and before we, uh, and before, sorry, before we move, move on from there, we talked about databases and database access and all of that. Now, one of the points that I want to make here is um, while the story around open source databases like Postgres and MySQL is pretty good, 
if you're in an enterprise context and you want to connect to things like a Microsoft SQL Server or an Oracle, that story basically doesn't exist. Interesting, because IBM doesn't use MySQL. Like... I honestly don't know what the, what the reason is, but this isn't something that's unique to, to Swift. For example, uh, if you look at even the Rust ecosystem, which is still up and coming, um, there's plenty of support for Postgres and MySQL, but for Oracle and, and, and SQL Server, the quote-unquote enterprise databases, uh, nobody really seems to be moving too much on that front, or if they are, they're not doing it in an open source way. Hmm. Just something to keep an eye on. If you have, if you have, uh, because one of the problems we run into with enterprises, uh, the companies that we work with, they have security policies that say we're an Oracle company or we're a Microsoft SQL Server company uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with us. So if you're going to deploy in those kind of environments, this is a deal killer. So there's no third-party libraries for accessing SQL Server or Oracle then. No? Uh, correct, yeah. There's a generic SQL generator, but uh, it probably won't work super well. Yeah, probably not. So that kind of leads into uh, one of the questions that I have is, you know, is there things that you would recommend people that not try to do within Swift on server side? Um, this is the big one, is, is if you're going to put this against a database that, that there isn't clear support for, it's something you want to not do upfront, right? Um, the other one, like I said, is, is you have to be really careful in terms of the crashing story, uh, where you have to change the mindset of people because uh, what, I, what I've usually noticed is people who come from a server-side background and other frameworks aren't used to that because it's not a problem for them. And iOS developers aren't used to that because it's not a problem for them either. Yeah, so that would really kind of make a lot of enterprises kind of skittish at uh, putting Swift on the server. Well, it depends. So what we're noticing is increasingly as we move to this cloud-native world, um, what a lot of companies, especially startups, are doing is just outsourcing this problem to a cloud provider. So, for example, today, if you were to spin up a new uh, backend for your iOS app, you probably aren't going to try and run Oracle or SQL Server, even if you're an enterprise. You're probably going to just say, hey, AWS, I'm just going to throw something into RDS or into, into Redshift or whatever it is, and, and we just use that. And those services typically have a front end for Postgres. Um, so if you're in that world, it should be fine. But if you're in the traditional on-premises enterprise world where they have these restrictions, you, you're going to be—it's going to be a tough uphill battle. Yeah, that kind of solves the database issue, but the the crashing issue—that uh, that's something you really have to think about if you're going to go enterprise correct, level. Correct. Yep. Correct. Yes. Uh, but but we, we do have to keep in mind as well that you know uh, Swift as a language. The design is such that you, they, the authors don't want you to crash, right? With, with things like your optionals and that kind of thing, the intention is try to write code that doesn't crash. Now in iOS, that's kind of, we're not quite there yet, but say you move, move on to Swift UI, that's not really a concern anymore because it's designed that way. Um, but it's, it's just a mindset shift that you have to make saying, we crash for absolutely no reason at all. Mm. Yeah, everybody would love to say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we we just need to make uh, our linters very brutal. Yeah, that's a very good point, and that's exactly what we do. Fortunately, uh, tools like Swift Lint are really nice for that, and they run on Linux, so so it's easy to set up and see that. Hmm. I have I have uh, one more question, or actually two questions that I, I hope Gopal you could uh, kind of clarify where server-side server Swift stands today. One of them is, 
and that's again kind of going back towards this either solo developers or very small teams or maybe those startups they're just not that big in terms of users and uh, uh, you know manpower to code things template based rendering of HTML pages what's the story there on server side Swift because the last time I personally checked because I wanted to replace my Ruby on Rails app for my personal website and that was just too painful but it was a few years ago right uh, no, I think I think uh, I think this is mostly a, a solved problem in that I think Vapor has a has a thing similar to handlebars uh, for this I think Victoria has one as well and and there are other open source Swift projects that predate uh, both of these that are just templating languages in general. Um, there's one I've used that, that, that is used by this iOS tool called Sorcery. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but um, Sorcery uses a templating language underneath the hood. And you could just as easily use that if, if you know how to use that. But um, I don't think that's a huge issue, but I'll be honest with you, this is not something that I've used extensively because typically, we're developing web services that yield JSON for the most part, right? Um, but I do believe there is a story around that now. Yeah, the, the reason for, for myself, I'm kind of looking at that, uh, why Ruby on Rails got popular and then such a wide adoption is because that particular feature was such a gateway in for everyone. Is that That's quite often when you're just starting out, you don't really need a single page application and heavy JavaScript stuff, right? You just need to render a bunch of HTML pages and then maybe have some efls in on what parts of those HTML pages to render at certain conditions. So yeah, and that I personally found to be kind of difficult, even though yes, Vapor supports it. It's just not as nice as Rails. Uh, but yeah, mm. it was easier to make JSON API. Let me put it this way, using Vapor. Yeah. I think that's really the, the emphasis uh, of, of all these frameworks is, is to sort of help you build web services that your apps can sort of use down the road. Because I think increasingly the sort of web 1.0 model, if you will, is uh, for better or worse, uh, too many people aren't, aren't building new stuff with it, if you will. Right. Hmm. Maybe that's a controversial opinion. I don't know. And uh, the last thing I wanted to ask, um, what about, and you mentioned that you have that environment, uh, microservices. How, how server-side Swift kind of fits there today? Does it play, play nice? Are there tools to deploy it like that? Uh, absolutely. I think this is one of the big advantages Swift has of sort of uh, coming into a world where this was sort of the default, if you will. Um, Swift is incredibly good in that sort of uh, deployment because a, it's, it's uh, uh, over the last year, in terms of just the, 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 the sort of templating of getting Swift running inside of Docker and all of that, the community has done that incredibly well. It's super easy to start and it works quite well. It's well-maintained and with every, uh, every release, you have it ready pretty much on day one. Um, in terms of sort of uh, your tooling around it for things like how do you do monitoring and logging and all of that, uh, the, the Swift Server Working Group has worked on, on Swift Log and Swift Metrics. Um, which are sort of uh, APIs, if you will, uh, for how Swift applications do logging and, and monitoring. And then there's now backends that are coming in for those that are, that are interfacing with popular components. For example, Swift Metrics already has a Prometheus uh, backend that works today. So that, that ecosystem is actually working really quite well. 
Um, and then the, the thing I talked about, about the, the, the process dying, guess what, in a microservices world, that's not as much of an issue anymore because you die, you just get brought back up, right? Um, the, the only problem you're going to face is you're going to have to reach by a bunch of requests because you also took down the in-flight requests, right? Um, so so that, from that perspective, I think Swift is pretty great for, for, for running in a microservices world. Uh, also helps that it starts up incredibly fast, unlike, say, the JVM. Okay, so if there's nothing else, um, what if there's a question that we didn't ask today that uh, somebody might has, have for you, Gopal? Is there a way that they could reach out to you? Uh, sure, yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, G-O-P-A-L-K-R-I. Okay, great, great. So I think that covers it for today. I think it was a really interesting show. Thanks, guys. Uh, we should move on to picks. So I can go first with my pick. Um, recently, I started playing... Uh, recreational hockey. So I've not really had any sports to do in the summer. And I, as a developer, I try to, you know, find some sort of activity to keep me healthy and keep me going. And in the summer, I play lots of uh, slow pitch softball, but uh, I didn't have anything to do in the winter until one of my softball buddies started talking to me about hockey. So I recently picked that up. And uh, if you've got hockey rinks in your area, go check it out and see if there's recreational hockey. You can, you can uh, go, have some fun. All right, Alex, what do you got for your pick? I have a book I recently read. Uh, it's called uh, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. It's um, sort of a summary of uh, ancient Roman and Greek uh, Stoic philosophers, kind of aggregation of what they wrote, Marcus Aurelius specifically, and his uh, meditations, his notes. It's fascinating. It's very digestible and tolerable unlike the original texts so I, I highly recommend it would it, it's very practical in terms of like old philosophies were it's actually practical for your life not just theoretical discussions so that's my pick all right what's your pick Skopal? Uh so I'm gonna pick uh, three github projects uh, since we talked about databases and that's something I'm really uh about um, so the first one is this wonderful uh, Swift wraparound SQLite called GRDB. It's written by a wonderful guy. Um, for those of you who are at iOS apps, do check it out. It's, it's a really great approach to dealing with databases. Um, another one which is very similar is from the Rust ecosystem called Diesel. So Diesel is sort of a, a take on active record, but in Rust, which is a heavily typed language. Um, so some great ideas there. And the final one, although this is, a, this is yeah, very popular, is SQL Delight uh, from the folks at Square, now Cash, I suppose. Uh, and they have a very different take of an ORM where they reverse the ORM and say, we write the SQL and generate the code. Okay. Well, thanks for spending some time with us today and going over uh, server-side Swift. It was really interesting. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. All right. Any last words, Alex? No, that, that was a great conversation. Yeah, I learned a lot. All right, great. And we'll catch everybody on the next episode. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.